Welcome to FRT, the IEF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr and today we're in Ottawa, first time that we've recorded in Canada. We did have Scotiabank CRO Daniel Moore join us back on episode 8. We actually recorded that one south of the border in Boston at the Risk Minds Americas conference. The reason we're up here today is that we have a special guest in Mark Zilman. Mark retired from OSFI, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions in 2016, having had a distinguished career as Deputy Superintendent. He was OSFI's member of the Bail Committee and also co-chaired the FSB Workstream on non-bank, non-insurance entities. Mark's career also included stints at the Bank of Canada, where he was also their representative on the Bail Committee, and at the IMF, where he was a Senior Economist and Deputy Division Chief in Monetary and Exchange Affairs. I was privileged to learn a lot from Mark in the relatively short period that we interacted while Bail 3 was being finalised, and he joins us today to discuss Canada's adoption of open banking and deposit stability. Mark, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and honoured to be your first recording here in Canada. Very good. It's always great to be up here. Mark, to begin, you retired from OSPE in 2016, but you've kept busy since then, including your independent review for the UK government on Cooperative Bank. Can you tell us about post-OSPE life and your recent activities? Thank you. I'm not working full-time, but neither have I been completely absent from professional life. You mentioned the Co-op Bank Review. That kept me busy for the past year. I'm on a couple of boards. One's called Assurus, which basically runs the compensation fund life insurance industry here in Canada. I'm also a non-executive director for one of the Canadian subsidiaries of State Street, the State Street Trust Company of Canada. Other than that, I've also was involved in an IMF project into the assessment of the Japanese financial system a couple of years ago. I've written a paper for the C.D. Howe Institute, where I serve as a senior fellow, and I did a little bit of teaching a couple of years ago. A variety of things to keep me out of mischief and not drive my wife crazy. Bit of a diverse coverage you've got there, and Japan obviously is very topical for us. The IEF will be in Japan in a few weeks uh, at the time of the G20 Finance Ministers Conference, and we'll talk a lot more there, I'm sure, about the modernisation of the payments industry over there. I want to pick up on the UK government's review you did on Cooperative Bank in a moment. Before I come to that, you were actively involved in the Bail Committee's deliberations and finalising the Bail 3 package of reforms. Curious on your reflections now, how you see the banking system today. We're a little over 10 years on from the onset of the crisis. And as we consider the future outlook, what do you see as the critical challenges ahead for the sector? Well, I think there's probably a couple of key things. The first is I know interest rates are very low right now, and that's a reflection of the fact that we still have some of the after effects of the crisis. But we've also gone through decades now of either declining or now low interest rates. One of the key challenges, I think, for banks and financial system generally will be how will conditions evolve when the tailwind of declining and low interest rates someday changes and either rates stabilize for an extended period of time or rates rise back to more traditional historical relationships. If that happens, I'd be curious to see how banks evolve to that because effectively their risk management practices and systems have all been learning in the context of a 30-year tailwind falling to low rates. Presumably, things could change in a hurry faster than their system could evolve. So I'll be curious to see how life unfolds. The other big challenge I think I see looking forward is if you think back to the middle 20th century, back in those days, there was a view of banks being very much a trusted advisor for customers in dealing with their financial issues. 
And over time, we've moved very much to a very different world where banks act like many other commercial entities in terms of promoting products that they think are attractive and leaving it to customers to decide what makes sense for them. The products and services are becoming more sophisticated and complex, but people's financial education is a bit limited. And so it does make some questions about, is banking open to competition from those that are going to put customer interests ahead of commercial interests? take more of a fiduciary relationship with customers. That to me, if somebody was going to come in on an open banking perspective, the core principle, I do have to wonder whether in some jurisdictions, banks could be exposed simply based on the fact that banks have had some legal challenges in recent years dealing with questions of mis-selling. I think you, you allude there to the challenge of like literacy, customer literacy, specifically with the growing complexity of banking products. But if I segue a little, it's, it's also a common issue to, to data literacy. It's one that I know Jose Manuel Gonzalez Barramo at the BBVA has called out a couple of times. And that is we go into an open banking environment and one that's about having data sharing frameworks. We have a similar challenge in that customers' levels of data literacy is often fairly low. And it's something that I think both the banking industry, the tech firms and the government as a whole probably all need to be consolidating or, or collaborating further in trying to energise those efforts as well. I agree. The whole issue of people understanding what data is out there that relates to themselves and the whole question of privacy and how that data is going to be used is certainly very much in its infancy. And mm. uh, if you just think back over the last couple of years, more and more issues around that are rising exponentially in people's awareness and discussions. So I have no idea how to deal with the kind of issues, but it certainly is becoming far more topical than it was, say, five years ago. Yeah, absolutely. We both mentioned Cooperative Bank in the UK in our, our opening remarks and your very comprehensive review relating to the period of 2008 to 13. If I can drill into one particular aspect that I think is really relevant on a wider basis in the future, picking up the remark you just made around the introduction of other parties and their fiduciary duty, you identified a potential threat to the stability of retail deposits, particularly where third parties may be involved. And in addition to the case of Co-op Bank, you cited an experience here in Canada with Home Trust in, in 2017. Can I get you to elaborate a bit on your concerns there, not specifically to co-op or home trust necessarily, but as a potential wider phenomenon? Happy to. So the basic issue that I see is as you involve third parties helping customers manage their financial affairs, the first stage is obviously helping customers get all the information in one place. But when you put a third party involved who then starts helping to manage the money on behalf of customers, the interests of that third party are going to be different than those of the customers from one perspective. Many customers have taken comfort from the fact that they have deposit insurance when they place money with the institution. And so when searching, they can be very attracted to whoever offers the best rate. And indeed, at least in the United States, the whole concept of deposit insurance grew out of a desire to help mitigate the risk of bankruptcy. The third party may not take the same degree of comfort from deposit insurance as the customer will. Why is that? Because let's imagine you are the person that is managing the money on behalf of somebody else. Do you really want to have the conversation with the person that says, basically, I know your money is with bank X that's in the headlines these days, and there's some question about bank X's viability, but don't worry, if the bank fails, you'll be protected because you, you're within the deposit insurance limit. I'm the third party. That's a difficult conversation to have yeah. because the customer's probably going to say, uh, that's very nice, but what, why did you put my money there in the first place? And uh, so the reputation of the third party for giving good service to the customer could come up. 
risk. So the third party's interest is going to be basically if bank X is in the news, they're likely going to move the money deposit insurance notwithstanding. So I don't think we can take the same degree of comfort from deposit insurance systems in the future that we've had in the past. And it certainly lay behind, from what I read in the newspapers at least, some of the behavior that happened in home trust depositors. And my thinking is many of the prudential standards on the liquidity front that were developed by Basel were very much based on the premise that retail deposit money would be sticky and stay with institutions because there were things like safety nets, like deposit insurance. But the more and more you effectively have retail depositors essentially being managed by institutions of one form or another, whether you call them brokers, whether you call them something called an open bank, whatever you want to call it, I think you effectively have more institutionalization of retail deposits than we might think we have just basically looking at uh, who's the beneficiary on the name of the account. So to me, that is an argument for rethinking some of the liquidity expectations of banks going forward to make sure that the liquidity buffers that they carry and the incentives for lengthening up the deposit base in terms of turning it out may need to be revisited down the road. I think it's a really topical point. You alluded to it earlier with the, the comment you made about deposit insurance helping to guard against bank runs. But I think it's more than just the scenario of a, a wartime or crisis scenario with bank runs. And indeed could be an issue in times of supposed peacetime, where if an internet platform, for instance, has one particular third party can make different offerings for customers to be able to move their money between a panel of banks, let's say, then you can have this scenario where the funds will stay in the banking system, but there's an increased volatility of how they can move from one bank to the next. So I think that throws up some really interesting questions, as you say, around the assumed stability and the, the assumptions that are inherent in the LCR and the NSFR. If we are to be revisiting those at some point, and I think it, it makes sense that we would, that what we have in VAL3 in the LCR and the NSFR is kind of the first generation of liquidity uh, regulation. But what would be some of the alternatives perhaps? Is it, is it merely revisiting the assumptions or is it putting a bigger emphasis on stress testing of liquidity, for instance? Well, rethinking the assumptions is a good starting point because in many respects, that's what the two standards are meant to be is a stress test. Because really, there is a provision in those standards for the fact that liquidity buffers can be drawn down in terms of stress. And in many ways, calibration was meant to be a crude form of stress scenario. But to me, they're a starting point. You can't codify everything in regulation. So I think there's also a need for banks when they're doing their own stress testing to think about how the deposit markets are evolving over time, how they're likely to evolve when you see major structural changes like open banking down the road. And think about what does that mean for how they should be uh, structuring the balance sheet and what kind of funding should they be seeking and to what extent can they assume that the diversification benefits from different funding sources will still be there in the future. Yeah, yeah. So with the concept of open banking now being adopted in Canada, I'm interested in your expectation as to, to how you think that will play out here. Uh, do you think we'll see a relatively slow uptake initially, uh, as was the case in the UK, for instance? And how do you expect the competitive landscape to change? The major Canadian banks have a uh, very strong competitive position at this point in time. And at least in the retail banking space, have been fairly nimble adapters to change. If you look back over Canadian banking history, couple of examples in my lifetime would be when banks were allowed to start extending credit to uh, households, 
they quickly took over in the sense the mortgage market from other parts of the financial system. They effectively competed away and took the credit card market away from apartment stores and gas companies and the like. Yeah. When mutual funds started to emerge in the horizon, they were pretty adept at getting in there, even at risk of cannibalizing the deposit base to open up mutual fund arms and take control of the mutual fund market. So if past experience is any guide, I think Canadian banks are fairly adept at acting to competitive threats that have emerged over time. So I would hope for their sake that they would continue to be as nimble as their predecessors were. Well, very good. Well, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. And if I can briefly highlight a couple of your key points, I think you gave a, a great reminder, personally, that, that whilst we tend to focus a lot at the moment on the fundamental shift we see in the industry around digital transformation, that we also need to be considering that against the backdrop of preparing for a change in interest rate environments and how we may see either quite dramatic shift or sustaining at a new level, either of which would have some fundamental impacts for how banks plan and structure their balance sheet and manage their risk. I think secondly, you've also made the point around how our banks have evolved, behaving more like other commercial entities, and that as the products have become more complicated, the impacts this has in terms of, of not only the customer literacy and, and data literacy we talked about, but also in terms of how banks fulfil their role as that, that trusted advisor. And linking that, I guess, to the fiduciary duty and where this stands in the light of third parties entering the market, how that overlays with the customer expectation in terms of the comfort of deposit insurance. And then I think we see the continued evolution of the assumptions in the LCR and the NSFR, really a new environment in terms of how deposit stability is assumed, what this means in terms of how banks fund themselves. But I think perhaps taking some comfort in the local market, at least, as you point out, that the Canadian banks have been nimble adopters of change and, and are hopefully well positioned to embrace the, the new environment, as we've seen in, uh, in other parts of the world, heralded by open banking. Looking ahead on FRT, we have some further great guests joining us in the coming weeks. In one of the long-awaited episodes that I've been promising for a while, Bill Kahn will join us to talk about the challenge of explainability in machine learning models. Bill led consumer behaviour modelling at Bank of America and provided much of the intellectual leadership in our IEF working group on this topic, and he's exemplary at explaining complex concepts for the benefit of simpletons like myself. We'll also bring you the top takeaways from the IEF Digital Finance Symposium in Washington on May 29 where the speakers will include Bill Kahn and also Canadians Pat Chalkas of the Ontario Securities Commission and Jean Demira of Manulife, as well as CFTC Chairman Christian Carlo and MAS's Sopnendu Mahanti. Please tune in again for those episodes via the IAF website, on SoundCloud and now on Apple Podcasts. I'm Brad Carr and thanks for joining us on FRC.